we are still uh, waiting for uh, more to come in, but uh, anyhow, I think we should uh, uh, get the webinar going. So a warm welcome uh, to all of you here today to this webinar on uh, poverty, human rights, and the SDGs. Uh, the webinar is uh, based on a book that uh, Martha Davies, uh, Amanda Lyons, and myself uh, just uh, have co-edited and which just uh, came out uh, starting some three years ago. When we started out some three years ago, we could not have foreseen that the book would be fresh out of the printer at a time where the world face, is faced with a poverty situation that has been severely aggravated due to the past 15 months with the COVID-19 crisis. Years of work eradicating extreme poverty has been brushed away at all continents. This will be the agenda item number one on the global agenda. To, and it will be the responsibility of the global community to address it in the coming years. And we already see it unfolding in discussions on a new social contract, new global deal, build back better, build forward fairer. Whatever the rhetorical frame will be on this gigantic task for the international community, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, as well as uh, the human rights instruments that we have at hand will be at the core of the challenge. At this webinar, we will focus on the intersection between poverty, human rights, and the SDGs. The uh, seminar, the webinar will be co-moderated by Amanda, Amanda Lyons and myself. Uh, and we have four outstanding panelists to join us uh, shortly. Amanda will present them uh, in a moment. After the panel, uh, we will have time for a discussion and we look very much forward to interesting comments and questions uh, and to a lively discussion. Please uh, use the chat uh, and then we will try to keep an eye on the questions and uh, convey them to the uh, panelists. The webinar will also be recorded uh, so we can share it afterwards for those who could not uh, be here today. Uh, we will share it on our website, on the RWI website. And I'm sure that uh, our uh, on uh, uh, Martha's and uh, Amanda's uh, institutes will also share them on their website. Before we turn to the panel, uh, I would like to give the floor to uh, Professor Martha Davies uh, to introduce the book. It is very much the initiative uh, of Martha. Thank you very much for pushing us uh, back there some three years ago. Very good initiative. Please, Martha. Thank you. Thank you, Morton. Well, it, you know, it was definitely a team effort, not only among the editors, the co-editors, but also among the many contributors. And um, so as Morton said, the occasion for this webinar is to celebrate the publication of the new book that Morton and Amanda and I co-edited. It's, um, I've got it here. It's the, let's see if you can see it. Can you see it? Mm -hmm. I don't know. <laughs> um, I think it doesn't show up the virtual background. Um, I'll see if I can, I can rectify that by the end. Um, anyway, it's a research handbook on human rights and poverty. It was published just a few weeks ago by Elgar Press as part of their research handbook series. And Martin said we conceived of this project uh, well before the COVID-19 pandemic, but we were 
really in the in the midstream of writing and editing the lockdown started and it was a you know people of course we've all been reminiscing for about a year ago crazy time and people will remember the level of uncertainty that that there was and our contributors forged ahead despite a lot of difficulties that they faced you know some with illness and and then just the uncertainty that we all had so we're happy now to have the book which I'll show you soon you can see a little bit there um, in, out into the world um, the project began about three years ago, as Morton said, but it got a boost in 2019 when a number of the contributors were able to come together in Washington, D.C. for a panel at the annual Law and Society Association Conference. And over time, the project grew to a book with 35 chapters from leading experts uh, from around the world, including the speakers, the distinguished speakers at today's webinar. Um, and then many of the contributors are also, I think, on the, uh, on the webinar as well. Uh, we really made an effort to cover a wide range of issues relating to poverty and human rights, which is, of course, already a pretty broad topic. Um, the, our limitation was that there was only a certain number of pages that could be bound together into a single book. And, and so we tried to include as much as possible within that, that one constraint that we had. The authors include activists like Alfred Brownell, writing on land rights in East Africa, as well as sort of activist academics like Philip Alston, who contributed a forward, and Gay McDougall, um, who analyzed global responses to race, racism, and poverty. Um, in some ways, I think the lockdowns and the slower pace that we all you know, had to put up with for a while contribute to the, contributed to the depth of the volume. So we have chapters from a number of former and current special rapporteurs. Lani Farha is here today will, um, and will be speaking as one, of course. Um, and I think that with travel on hold and many programs and events canceled, many of our contributors were able to step back a bit and take the time to reflect and synthesize their work in, in new ways. For example, Gerard Quinn, the current Special Rapporteur for Disability Rights, uses his chapter to map out a human rights and disability agenda for the 21st century. Um, I'll mention now that, and, and we'll give you more information about this later, we're going to be holding a second webinar on May 18th, featuring four uh, more contributors to the book, Lane McNaughton, Magdalena Sepulveda Carmona, Natalia Angel Tabo. No, Natalia, you're on here now, no? Yeah. Yes. Oh. Somebody else, and um, Domingo Rivera. Um, you know who you are, the fourth person. Um, the focus of that webinar will be inequality and poverty, and uh, more to come on that. Um, the idea behind the research handbook series uh, that Elgar is putting out is not only to take stock and reflect but also to lay out ideas for future research. And each of our contributors addressed this as well, offering research ideas in areas ranging from sexual identity and poverty. Um, so Victor Madrigal Boylos, the um, uh, special rapporteur on the sexual orientation and gender identity, um, presents a survey of his work, um, also addressing technology and taxation, labor law and issues of privatization. And so our hope is that this book will not only provide a baseline that gathers and synthesizes current research, um, but that it will also be a resource for new researchers as they start grappling with the interactions and intersections between poverty and human rights. Um, and with that, let me turn it back over to Morton to begin the discussion. Thanks. Thanks, Martha. Well, I think I'll take it from here. Hi, everybody. I am Amanda, and it's really great to see so many people on the call today. And I think especially after all the time working on the book kind of over email and exchanging texts, it's really nice to have these spaces to have some conversations about um, all the exciting topics that are covered. 
Um, so today I'm really glad to be able to introduce our panelists that we have speaking today. I'll just get off a very brief, everybody has very extensive experience. I'll offer a, a, just a brief note on each of our speakers so you can have a sense of the depth of expertise that they bring to the conversation. And then we'll move into the remarks. So first online, we have Hansato Sano, who um, is research director at the Danish Institute for Human Rights. And he's worked there for more than 20 years. He has a PhD in economic history and has worked with the World Bank previously and has done research in several countries in Europe and in Africa also. And Hansato is really an expert and leader working at the nexus of development and poverty and human rights. And so we're really lucky to have him here giving us kind of an overall look at what we mean by a human rights-based approach to poverty. Um, so thanks for being here with us, Hansato. And next, we'll also be able to hear from Samudu Adapatu, who is actually my neighbor over here next door in Wisconsin. And Samudu is a lawyer trained in Sri Lanka and holds a PhD in, envir in international environmental law from Cambridge. Samudu is the director of research centers and international programs at the University of Wisconsin Law School. And she's the executive director of the human rights program there. Um, she also has the role of serving as lead counsel for, the, for human rights and poverty um, at the Center for International Sustainable Development Law, which is a leading global research center. And so we're really pleased to be able to count on Samudu's expertise and today, especially making the links with, with climate change. Next in the lineup, we have Leilani Farha. Leilani is a lawyer by training and served as the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Housing from 2014 to 2020. So just recently having left that, left that post. She's also the global director of The Shift, which is an international movement to secure the right to housing. And in both of those roles, Leilani has really been incredibly effective in developing the standards around the right to housing in several different areas, and especially on um, the financialization of housing, which was the focus of the chapter and, and some of the comments today. So we're really glad to have you, Leilani. And finally, joining us from Bogota, we have Natalia Angel Cabo. Natalia is a professor of law at the University de los Andes in Bogota. And she's the chief editor of the Latin American Law Review. Um, Natalia has been deputy justice of the Colombian Constitutional Court. She's the founder and former director of the Action Program for Equality and Social Inclusion and has been a consultant on a wide range of, of human rights projects. In 2017, Natalia was nominated as a candidate to be a magistrate of the Colombian Constitutional Court and currently serves there as an associate justice. And Natalia today will be speaking about some of the social movements that have been taking place in, in Latin American cities, um, really based on economic social claims. So you can see we have a wide ranging conversation today and we will jump right into that. So first our thought is to have a few remarks from our panelists on their different areas of expertise. You can feel free to put any questions or comments in the chat if you would like to identify yourself also please do that. And so after we have some of these remarks, we'll, we'll move into question and answer. And so I'd like to start with Hansato, please. Um, in, in your chapter, you make the strong point that declines in poverty are often kind of related in the literature to economic growth, tied really closely together, and that economists' interpretations don't always look at, at human rights. So I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about the human rights-based approach to poverty and what distinguish it, distinguishes it from, from other approaches? 
Thank you very much, Amanda. I, I would like also, uh, apart from addressing the issue and the question about uh, the human rights-based approach uh, to poverty, I would also like to, to take departure in some of the more recent trends uh, and the recent patterns of change uh, in Africa, uh, which ha have come about um, due to uh, to the COVID nineteen, as Morton started by mentioning, yeah, the, these changes are uh, important, and not only for the uh, negative, but also for the positive uh, elements. But first, on on this issue of uh, addressing uh, the linkages between human rights and poverty that you mentioned, and which. Uh, uh, where economists absolutely have uh, failed to, to uh, consider any elements of uh, human rights, or they did that in the past. Um, um, but also human rights scholars, I think they have not been, well, they have not had paid much analytical attention uh, to poverty, not in the African context, at least. I miss substantial work on the ground uh, in the African uh, in the African context. Um, but what I'm saying is that the the consolidation of social security rights in the wake of the corona may change this pattern, because certainly now we see that social security rights have uh, become very important elements. Uh, in uh, in the wake of the corona, we have 40 countries in Africa uh, who have introduced new cash uh, transfer measures during 2020. And the numbers re receiving social rights support have increased and amounts have risen. Urban food aid has also been a feature of uh, COVID-19. So human rights elements have become important in, in, uh, in the wake of the corona. And I think it will be difficult for African governments and of course also for donors to just uh, forget about the, this, these new features of uh, uh, social rights protection. Um, poverty uh, is uh, poverty induced uh, Poverty induced by COVID-19 is likely to be an urban one. Unemployment use, loss of jobs, massive negative impact on the informal sector. These are reasons why governments have been concerned about urban and use unrest. And uh, gender inequalities prevail in Africa. We have 40 countries worldwide uh, where limit, uh, which uh, limit uh, women's property rights and the majority in Africa. While patterns of economic inequality vary in Africa, the impact of COVID-19 is likely to exacerbate gender inequality and uh, female uh, income opportunities. Violence against women uh, has increased. In some countries, reports have uh, raised concerns about systematic uh, domestic violence. So uh, can you move to the next slide? Yes. Um, 
just to say a few words about uh, what a human rights-based uh, approach to poverty uh, may imply. It means that uh, poverty policies are based on human rights standards and principles, and the priorities of duty bearers in the poverty domain are settled in dialogue with poor uh, people and their representations. Uh, fundamental elements in that dialogue will circle around non-discrimination uh, and will entail institutionalization of influence and empowerment from below. In, this means also that in the African context, the human rights-based approach can include inequality dimensions, for instance, urban rural living standards, uh, advocacy and empowerment, uh, the rights-based change from below. Also the metrics of poverty, rather than monetary metrics support uh, well, uh, we should think about uh, support for non-monetary indicators uh, like done in the Ox Oxford Poverty and Human Development Initiative. Um, I think this is an important area where uh, human rights has maybe influenced also the thinking in uh, IF IFIs like, like the World Bank. Then we have social protections, as already mentioned, but and also in the case of migrants. Freedoms, the democratic space, is a precondition for justice and empowerment. And finally, we have the, the climate and environmental impact. Okay, thank you very much. I'll end my brief here. Hans, I'm going to take the prerogative of having the, the floor here to ask a, a quick follow-up question that is always a curiosity to me. I'm wondering how important do you see it in your research or policy work that the human rights agenda have the name of human rights? Can you do kind of human rights work using these principles that you're listing out or is it important to name explicitly that it's a human rights-based approach? Not always. I don't think so. I mean, we also were today going to talk about the SDGs and the linkages between the SDGs and the human rights uh, are sometimes quite strong. At least you can use the SDGs also for promoting uh, human rights as regards uh, social protection. Um, we have uh, uh, the 1.3 uh, STG, the, the target 1.3, which is on social protection and which is formulated in human rights-based terms, but not mentioning human rights. SDGs are not mentioning human rights at all, except for one indicator. That's a great example. Mm -hmm. Great, thanks. I'm sure we'll be much, we're coming back to that point. <laughs> Thank you very much, Hans-Otto. Uh, and let's uh, move on to the next panelist, uh, to Sumuto, and uh, touching on uh, what uh, Hans-Otto landed sort of on the climate change, because one thing is what the COVID-19 crisis has brought about, but uh, for sure the, the climate change also exaggerating poverty uh, and also the conditions of uh, vulnerability. Uh, we see the both the, the sudden, the, the storms, the, the flooding, but also the, the long-term impact of the climate change 
uh, in relation to sea level uh, rising and, and other uh, occurrences. And very often hitting disproportionately the most impoverished uh, people in, in the communities. So, so Modu, uh, can, you, can you describe a little bit this intersection between climate change, human rights and, and poverty? I mean, how, how do you see your work so much on, on that issue? And, and what do you think the human rights-based approach uh, can uh, can contribute to uh, to address the situation, both for in relation to the climate change, but definitely also in relation to the poverty eradication. Um, thank you so much, Morten, and um, thank you to the organizers uh, for inviting me to speak. Um, so, Morten, uh, you touched on um, some of the consequences of climate change. Um, let me time myself. Um, like um, slow onset and sudden events, uh, sudden events we are very familiar with. There are um, so many severe um, weather events that are affecting uh, ranging from floods to um, hurricanes. Um, and we also have slow onset events like sea level rise, desertification, um, and both are causing uh, food and water shortages. And um, these have a direct impact on rights of people. Um, and it's always the poor and the marginalized that are disproportionately affected by these uh, consequences, whether it's uh, poor countries in the world or poor people um, in rich countries as well. Um, so it's a real injustice when we uh, think about uh, climate change um, and COVID as well. We have seen that happening as well, the, the disproportionate impact on poor people and marginalized communities, minorities, uh, there's a disproportionate impact on them and they're least able to adapt to these consequences. Um, and um, as we know, uh, 1.3 billion people currently live in multidimensional poverty um, which means that it's not just about income we are talking about, but poor people have multiple other disadvantages. Um, and climate change, uh, like with COVID, will exacerbate poverty and other conditions of vulnerability. And um, the World Bank has estimated that climate change will push um, 120 more million, sorry, 120 million more people into poverty by 2030. Um, and as we know, uh, poverty is also a human rights issue uh, because poor people um, cannot really um, enjoy their rights or they are also at a greater risk of having their rights infringed. Um, and uh, like uh, with climate change, poverty and environmental issues, like um, um, Hans mentioned just now, are also interrelated. Uh, poor people tend to live in um, areas where uh, the environment is degraded or uh, <clears throat> uh, they are vulnerable to these uh, environmental consequences. And, environmental treaties and instruments have um, recognized this linkage starting with the, our common future report. Um, and as we saw with the consequences of climate change, 
um, there's a direct impact on human rights. So the enjoyment of many of the rights uh, that are protected in international human rights law could be undermined because of the um, consequences of climate change. Uh, so climate change will exacerbate poverty, both climate change and um, uh, poverty um, have human rights implications. Um, so um, they're all interlinked. Um, so uh, Morton, you asked me why a human rights in, uh, approach is important. Um, I think it gives a human face to the problem. We tend to talk about um, both climate change and poverty um, sort of at the macro level uh, in abstract terms. Uh, but these are real people who are being affected by both these issues, right? So giving a human face to um, the problem is important. Um, and it also gives victims a voice. We know that in many of these uh, negotiations uh, let's, uh, that take place at the international level, um, often these vulnerable groups are not heard. They are not given a voice. They are not represented. Um, so by adopting a human rights approach, um, we uh, can give them a voice, uh, not just in relation to negotiations, but um, if they um, can get to the courts, they can seek a remedy. Of course, there are other jurisdictional and uh, other hurdles uh, to overcome, but um, the human rights framework provides them with a remedy. And um, also uh, yeah, the framework principles on human rights and environment um, have highlighted that states have additional obligations um, to uh, ensure that the rights of vulnerable people are, are protected. So that's in addition to the human rights obligations that states have in relation to everybody else, states will have additional obligations. Um, so um, to um, sort of sum up, poverty, human rights, and climate change are interlinked. Uh, both are human rights, uh, both climate change and poverty are human rights issues. They are global issues with localized consequences and both can undermine people's ability to enjoy rights. And uh, the other issue that I want to highlight is that these vulnerabilities intersect with one another. So it's important to recognize this intersectional nature of climate change, poverty and human rights and they have to be addressed together. I'll stop there. Thank you very much, Sumuru. And uh, I, I, was, I was just wondering, I mean, would you also see human rights and the SDG as sort of a, as an analytical tool to identify, in particular, when you have a, 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 a suddenly a current crisis, who are those groups that are left behind? Where is it that we should step in? Uh, groups that may be overlooked uh, today that the, the human rights and the SDGs can, can sort of they have played that role as well. Do you see that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the SDGs, um, you know, if you are um, uh, a poor person, right, 
uh, many of the SDGs will not be, uh, will be violated, like access to water, for example, um, gender equity, um, access to education. So, um, so um, SDGs highlight the intersectional nature of these goals and human rights uh, provides us with a tool to uh, bring to light uh, the, the impact on vulnerable communities. And I mentioned the injustice of climate change earlier and the justice framework, in addition to SDGs and um, human rights, I think the justice framework is a really good tool. Environmental justice uh, is a really good tool to highlight the disproportionate impact on some of these communities. And um, the human rights gives them a tool to uh, you know, bring their issues to the table and things like that. So there are several sort of frameworks that we can use to highlight the disproportionate impact on some of these communities. Thank you. Great, thanks, Samuda. That's great. And of course, related to a lot of uh, environmental justice and climate change questions is is the right to housing. Um, Leilani, we'll we'll turn to you. And in in your chapter with Caitlin Schwan, you really convey really compelling the levels of, of challenges in housing and how intractable those are. And I think also how core that is to human dignity and the experience of people that are living in poverty. So I'm hoping you'll tell us a little bit about how you see the human rights-based approach to housing and, and poverty. Thanks. Sure, thank you. And uh, I just want to thank in particular Martha and Mor Morton for inviting me into this whole project. Uh, and my colleague Caitlin, and for being so incredibly patient with us as we missed every single deadline all along the way. Thank you. Um, it's a real um, a pleasure to be here and certainly an honor. Um, I want to start by saying this. I think two things are certain and have been exposed dramatically during the pandemic. First, that governments have failed to effectively implement the right to housing all the way up to the pandemic and well through the pandemic. And we know this because if the right to housing had been taken seriously and integrated into legislative and policy making, we would not see widespread homelessness, in, in, including for particular groups of people, which is a prima facie violation. We would not see the rise of informal settlements without basic services like water and sanitation which constitutes a violation of the right to housing. We would not see the world's urban population living in unaffordable rental housing, fearful of and subject to eviction, a violation of human rights. We would not see people being forcibly evicted into homelessness, a violation of human rights. And we would not see governments facilitating high finance so that it can mine housing and home of its value. And the second thing that I am certain of is that governments have not been held accountable for the misery and inequality they have created through their unswerving commitment to a neoliberal agenda, which has played itself out acutely in the area of housing and residential real estate. And I wanna be clear that governments haven't just allowed the financialization of housing to happen unregulated. 
They haven't just supported it through law and policy, and they haven't just granted high finance undue political advantage and persuasion. They have in fact based their entire economies and governance structures in the financialization of housing. So in the face of all of this, what does a rights-based approach offer? I have five points. First, homelessness, living under bridges on the pavements or on the pavements, eviction and forced eviction from your home, from your lands, from your culture, grossly inadequate housing, lacking basic services, all of these phenomenon challenge dignity, challenge well-being, and challenge human life itself. These are human rights matters and therefore demand human rights responses. So, I mean, it would be unthinkable that we would treat other human rights matters in a way that didn't have a human rights response. We need to start doing that with respect to housing and that in and of itself is a value added. I think human rights change tenants, dwellers, residents from beneficiaries of charity at best or criminals at worst into rights holders. So when a community is formed along a railway because they have nowhere else to live or a tent is pitched on a sidewalk through human rights, we see these and understand these as rights claims by human rights defenders. And that changes then policy and legislative talk and action. Officials, government officials suddenly become responsible for implementing human rights. That becomes their chief role. Third, human rights require the meaningful participation of communities in decisions that affect their lives. And I mean, frankly, this just makes for better decision-making and it makes for more peaceful and happy societies. That may, that may sound charming, but I think it's true. If you look around the world at all the protests, all the people taking to the streets prior to the pandemic in particular, but even during the pandemic, so much of that has, is based in the fact that people are not being listened to by their governments, including about their housing conditions. Human rights-based housing strategies include accountability mechanisms. It's a requirement of a human rights-based housing strategy. And that to me is one of the real strengths. There are standards that attach to the right to housing that governments must meet. Every housing and finance decision taken should come under human rights analysis. How does it move forward the right to housing of marginalized populations? And there must be venues, as the previous speaker said, for rights holders to go where they can hold their governments accountable. And in fact, just show governments what is required in order for them to enjoy their human rights. And lastly, I'll say that I think the human rights framework, and it's a framework that actually does inform the SDGs, is quite unique for having as its central goal the pursuit of equality. We have seen starkly through COVID just how unequal the world really is. I read in Forbes magazine recently, in the last year, we have seen 
a new billionaire created every 17 hours, 500 new billionaires during the pandemic. At the same time, the World Bank anticipates an additional 150 million people will be living in extreme poverty, newly living in extreme poverty. The implementation of human rights across sectors and through human rights-based legislation and policy is the correction to inequality. A lot of people are talking right now about the new social contract, a new social contract. And I like those discussions, but any new social contract would have to be based in human rights. Thank you. Milani, that's so helpful to break it out like that. I'm wondering if you could say just a word in your experience, are you seeing the SDG agenda as something that's opening the way for advancing that type of a human rights-based approach? Or how are you seeing the, the SDGs in no, that space? No. <laughs> um, one thing that's really interesting is local governments that I'm working with are really apprised of the SDGs and they are taking the SDGs quite seriously. But the, the very worrying thing that we all know about the pursuit of the SDGs, especially now with this um, depression, economic depression and recession that we're in, um, is that uh, private capital is going to be required. That's what governments are saying. Private capital is going to be required in order to actually meet the sustainable development goals by 2030 or thereafter. And in the housing sector, that's a complete disaster. I mean, that's the body of work I've been, I've been dealing with, which is private equity, pension funds, private monies, invading the housing landscape, having no regard for human rights and the human right to housing, and really putting so much pressure on, the hou on housing systems that really ending up in many, many multiple violations of the right to housing. So I, I am very um, disturbed by the way the SDGs uh, are being approached and this um, sort of natural inclination to look for private money to make it happen. Governments claim they're poor. The one thing the pandemic has shown is that governments can print money they're printing money, they're, they're just printing money. And so, so we need some um, pushback. I, I just will say one more thing. I, I noticed that um, President Biden in his infrastructure bill uh, has said that uh, he will not extend monies to private equity to help with the building of infrastructure in the United States, which, which includes housing and, and housing supports. And he and people are critiquing him. Oh, that's a 1970s and 1980s style of infrastructure. But I completely admire it. I think he's right to say governments can do infrastructure and we will do infrastructure without private equity. It's a good sign. Thank you very much, uh, Lailani. And uh, you are excused for being a little bit late uh, with the <laughs> with some of the submissions so <laughs> no thanks a lot it was such, it's such a great piece and also thanks a lot for for your presentation presentation now and now over to natalia uh, and and actually uh, the, the question to you is also let's say responding to a question from uh, one in our audience uh, who also would like to 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 hear about the sort of the social movements what how do we engage people uh, in uh, in the struggle against uh, poverty and um, 
what you write in your article that you have co-authored with uh, Professor Luisa Sotomayor of uh, York uh, University, uh, you start out looking at the social unrest uh, in Chile in 2018, which I also share with you is, is a unique, uh, uh, let's say, example of how a social unrest use the human rights language and uh, focus, they focused very much and focus still very much on the on the constitution uh, in Chile. So, uh, so I think it's interesting now to see that the social mobilization uh, is partly bringing on board, uh, I would almost say again, uh, a human rights language. So my question to you is that, the, uh, what, is the, what is the future? How do you see the development of the uh, social mobilization uh, and how does the human rights movement play into them Or are, is this new sort of social mobilization, as we have seen in Chile, is that the future human rights movement, question mark, of course, focusing very much on economic, social and cultural rights? Um, well, first, thank you, Morten, Martha, Amanda, for this, uh, for the addition of this wonderful book. I'm really, really honored to be a part of it and a part of this uh, webinar. Um, I, I will answer your question by first explaining uh, in which context we were addressing the Tilian protests and others. Um, our chapter basically reflects on the potential of human rights for social change and poverty reduction uh, from the perspective of the city. Uh, Hans Soto was really saying now poverty is also an urban, is nowadays a, an urban phenomenon mostly. Um, and so one of the things that we address or we were showing is that in the last years, there, there has been, there has an emergence of critique of rights. Critique of rights have been for many years around, but in the last 10 days, we've seen with full force these critiques. You've seen several books coming out, criticizing the potential of rights uh, for social change and really casting doubts about the potential uh, of rights. You could see Samuel Moyne's uh, book, um, a Posner, Hoopgood, there's, there's plenty of books really, really making strong critiques on uh, the potential of rights uh, to, ch to challenge equality and, and uh, poverty. Um, and definitely these critiques have some purchase as for instance, if we, we take into Moyne's concern, well, it is true, equality has not been eradicated from the world, and for that instance, poverty uh, neither. Uh, but what we are trying to say in our paper, and we are far from optimists, um, is that that doesn't mean that there are some potential for human rights and for human rights to, to produce social change. And one of the biggest examples that, uh, that we think is important is that human rights have been for many, many years Uh, a common language for social movements to raise their grievance and to challenge um, and to challenge injustice and inequality. And in that instance, we, we show and take into account the protests that took place in, not only in Chile, as a matter of fact, in many, many cities um, of the world and in Latin America was particularly relevant 
um, using the language of rights. I don't know if I, I will show you one uh, PowerPoint, but if you can see this PowerPoint, this is a PowerPoint of, of uh, social protests taking place in Latin America, in Colombia, one is from Colombia, another is from Chile, from La Paz, and from Mexico. And this, of course, I, 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 I didn't take photos of everything, but you can see they are really using the language of right. It was a protest about claiming the right to health, the right to food, the right to education, the right to social security. Uh, so, so I don't think it's a minor uh, contribution of, um, of human rights, basically, to provide that language of rights. Whether this is a new thing, of course not. Uh, social movements have used uh, rights and challenged for rights and mobilized uh, uh, to defend rights for centuries and for many, many, many years. Um, but it's interesting how, at least in this protest in which we brought the example, how it was really, really a powerful tool for social, uh, for social movements. Uh, of course, social movements use creative ways of how to challenge privilege and injustice, and this is one of them. What, what is to follow? Well, I think we also need to, to understand what is happening now. Uh, the question with COVID and social movement is an interesting one because one of the impacts of, of COVID has been on mobilization and social movement, especially uh, for the poor. Uh, so, so the poor, basically the way to mobilize and to have collective actions is to take out the streets. Um, and so I, I, I've seen one article that says that there was a decrease between 2019 when we saw all these protests and 2020, of course, in social protests outside the streets. Um, and and the, 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 I, I don't remember who the author was, but he was claiming that it was around 60%. Uh, but you, you've seen some other, other creative ways in which people are mobilizing, but for sure we have to ask uh, what will go for social movements and for uh, social protest and mobilization around rights with these new circumstances. Because you would see, for example, um, also governments that in the name of protecting health and protecting security, also restricting fundamental rights as to mobilize in order to, to advocate for rights. So yeah, we'll have to discuss it in the, in the context of COVID. Thank you very much, uh, and and uh, you 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 raise sort of the uh, or you mentioned the critique of Moyn and Hobscot and uh, and others. I mean, their critique is uh, basically uh, leading to a complete uh, dismissal of the human rights uh, let's say regime or sort of the whole whole thinking in in terms of of human rights. I was I was wondering from what you said now, and uh, if uh, would you see it in the way that they have actually overlooked uh, what happened in the global south. That uh, their critique is very much linked to the to what the what happened in the global north and the big uh, American uh, British organization Amnesty International uh, Human Rights Watch, and that was it, basically ignoring what they sort of say they critique. Uh, 
And uh, I mean, I think that is also what uh, an author like Catherine uh, Sicking uh, is sort of in her book and also taking outset in Latin America. How, how would you see this? Well, uh, actually, one critique that was made to more in book than not enough was was that that it was too Americanized reading of of human rights and European reading of human rights, and he really responded uh, denying, uh, really, really saying no. I did take into account the global South. I'm really not sure that he was not reading it from a very Americanized and European perspective, and I think the responses. Um, there are several responses to those critiques showing how in the global south we have had a very interesting, uh, let's say, gains, for example, with respect to uh, socioeconomic rights, uh, litigation and, and enforcement. And those things are, cannot be dismissed. Those have been important gains. Uh, for social rights. And even the fact that we're talking about, uh, we have not achieved complete housing or education, but we have had several gains, I think since the uh, late uh, 80s uh, that cannot be dismissed. And as, so I do think there's a hold on that critique against the critics of, of, of the human rights uh, regime. They don't, they, they would never say that they are dismissing altogether the human rights, but they basically are really making very strong claims. Sometimes, especially with the equality, I think you are asking too much for human rights. I don't think human rights will just bring equality, eradicate poverty, uh, but that doesn't mean they are limited, but that doesn't mean they do not have potential to help and aid to produce social change. Please. Thank you very much, uh, Natalia. And uh, that uh, sort of exhausts uh, our brilliant uh, panel and uh, that has definitely uh, provoked a lot of uh, very good comments and questions. Not that I have a, at all a chance to read it all and, uh, but I just sort of can feel it when it passed uh, over the screen. Uh, but before we open up for some of the questions, uh, I just wonder if uh, any of the panelists uh, would uh, have some comments or questions uh, uh, to to some of the other panelists or something you would you would like to to deepen in light of what had been said. And also, if you, Martha, uh, uh, if you have uh, something you would like to to add, comment on. You well, just I, I can see you also you. Martha? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah. 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 Um, uh, yeah. So I've been I've been working, yeah, work, working with um, some of the um, voluntary local reviews that communities are doing. Um, there are only three of them that have been done in the U.S., but I've been taking a look at them. And uh, what struck me is that uh, you know the um, the reports certainly go through the SDGs and and you know sort of identify the metrics. But there's not any recognition in those reports, you know, explicitly of the of a human rights base. And it's also the case that there hasn't really been community participation, which is one thing that I would hope that the SDGs, you know, the SDG framework would would open up at the community level. And so I wondered, I mean, Leilani, you you talked about working with communities, I guess, um, maybe around the world, but maybe in Canada around SDGs. Just wonder to what extent do you think? They really have the capacity to be the basis for 
organizing or increasing participation at, at the local level in, uh, you know, changing frameworks and, and challenging um, sort of uh, local goals? Um, I mean, I think cities have a tremendous role to play um, and tremendous capacity. I think there's a couple things at play there, though. On the one hand, cities need to uh, recognize the potential role they have and the potential capacity they have. Cities are, are quite quick to say um, that they don't have enough resources and that they don't have the competencies to do things to move us toward the sustainable development goals, if that's the goal, or to implement the human rights. Um, that's often not the case. And so cities need to kind of sit with themselves a little bit and look and, and push the boundaries of what's possible. And I mean, there are some real leaders out there. You look at Mayor Ada Kalau in Barcelona, um, even the mayor of Berlin doing really some, some very interesting things. The mayor of Montreal, uh, formerly the mayor of Seoul, um, you know, really trying some different human rights oriented things um, and, and pushing boundaries. I think there, um, also, uh, city governments need to own up to the role they play in um, abusing human rights, certainly in the housing uh, sector. I mean, uh, I know there are people on this call with more expertise on this than me, um, but uh, if you look at who's implementing forced evictions, it's often uh, city-level government. Um, if you uh, look at um, who's sweeping up homeless people from under bridges, from parks, uh, etc., it's often city-level government. So, so they need to do some little soul-searching there too. They could do so much better. Um, but then national-level governments really do need to look at what they've downloaded to cities and that city and recognize that cities really are on the front line of all of these crises, whether it's the climate crisis or the global housing crisis, and, and ensure that cities have the resources and capacities to move forward this agenda. Um, so a bit of a mixed response there, Martha. Very good, uh, Simudu. Um, I have a um, comment and a question. Uh, the comment is about lack of money, and um, I think it was Lilani who uh, mentioned that you know governments claim that they don't have enough money, um, and I would like to say that sure, I mean uh, they have enough money to spend on say national security. When when it comes to security, it's they um, always have money. But when it comes to environmental issues or human rights issues uh, or even poverty, they don't have enough money. Uh, I mean, if we can even um, take a fraction of the money government spend on security, um, there will be enough money for many of the projects that we are talking about. Um, the question I have, I think uh, the only economist in the panel is Hans. Um, um, is about the current economic system that has led to uh, these inequalities and climate change as well. Uh, it's an externality of our economic system. Um, so we are trying to fix a problem or problems that have been caused by the system by relying on the same system that caused them. So, I mean, to me, it doesn't make sense at all. So 
how do how do we address this both poverty and climate change um, i don't think we have succeeded in addressing these issues by relying on the same economic system that caused them so any um, sort of um, advice that you can provide to us would be very welcome. Be before you reply, Hans Otto, uh, I will add one or two questions uh, along the same line from, uh, from the audience, uh, because it is an issue that is uh, definitely uh, figuring uh, quite a bit in the, uh, in the chat. Uh, we have uh, Milun Kotari, uh, Milun Kotari, who is uh, also an author uh, in the book, very pleased uh, that you are here as well. Uh, but, and he basically asked uh, if the entire SDGs is, is flawed uh, in the sense that they build on the exactly the, the economy that uh, has led to some of these uh, uh, challenges that, that we are. Uh, Milun is also asking another question that uh, also to you, Hans Otto, uh, and, and that is you focus and others have uh, as well focused on the uh, the urban areas, where is that? It's uh, what about the rural areas? The the where we definitely see the poverty. Sumudu already uh, addressed it uh, somewhat in your presentation, but um, but I think there's a big basket of questions here in relation to the uh, neoliberal uh, economy. And Toto? Yes, um, just to so Sumudu's question on on the system and the systems the ability to reform the system and to use the system in order to redress, uh, for instance, uh, the threats of uh, climate change. Um, this is a small question, a very detailed one, and not you know. Uh, I think it's not easy to answer from uh, because it's so uh, it takes in, into account uh, one understanding of the system. Uh, you could say that the system is neoliberal, uh, like Morton just said, um, and that is uh, that is true. Uh, it's also uh, authoritarian in some ways if you move from the west to the east. And uh, there are systems and systems within the global sphere. And uh, if, we are, if we have to address um, the issues from a scientific point of view, from an analytical point of view, uh, I think we, we need to dig into uh, to these um, uh, to, to these uh, distinctions and to understand better the social forces behind. Also, when we talk about the SDGs, uh, well, um, like uh, we, we could think like Milone is uh, arguing that uh, the, the SDGs is, is, just, uh, is just not the answer. You could also counterpose it with uh, some of the experiences of the Millennium Development Goals and uh, some of the, the well, uh, the ability of the Millennium Goal at least to create some uh, changes in, in health and education, despite a lot of the deficits in the Millennium Development Goal. And it's not that I'm an advocate 
of uh, the Millennium uh, Development Goals. I'm, I'm perhaps more happy with the Sustainable Development Goals. But still, I'm also, I also recognize, for instance, on climate change, the indicators of, of climate change in the Sustainable Development Goals are not very impressive in my view. Uh, so there's also a question of how we use uh, the sustainable development goals, how they are used by social actors. Um, you can, in a way, you can play with them, you can translate them, and you can use them as a, a way also to, to create uh, a movements uh, against uh, the prevailing rulers in various places. Um, so there are many. So there are many complicated issues here, and there are many opportunities, but there are also many threats. And uh, so I think we uh, we need to dig into uh, these issues from a more detailed point of view in order to provide a, a very good answer. On, on the Milon's question on, on the, the urban uh, issues, um, I, I just want to say that uh, I mentioned in, in, urban, uh, in urban Africa that uh, poverty was emerging or was gaining ground there. Uh, I'm not saying it's the only impact, in, uh, it's also uh, reaching rural areas in, in Africa, certainly, but uh, due to, to, uh, to the impact uh, of the COVID-19, mainly in urban areas in, in Africa, it's here that uh, I see some of the, the, the difficult issues. Thank you, Antoso. And uh, I can uh, say that together with the Office of the High Commission of Human Rights, uh, the the Rolf Wallenberg Institute uh, is uh, working now, initiating a, a project uh, with a number of uh, heterodox uh, economists to uh, exactly as uh, panelists have said, dig much deeper into uh, to this issue and how, how we see the interconnectedness and, and also to offer, let's say some, try to offer some new avenues uh, when it comes to the, to the way we perceive the economy. Uh, Amanda. Sure, thanks. And I'm just I'm just realizing that we had questions in the Q&A and in the chat. So there's a lot of great comments so we can come back to those. Um, just two to kind of throw out to any panelists that might be interested in, in answering this. One question is about um, specifically about migrants and people with undocumented status, if that's something that you're, you're seeing in your work. And uh, a question that I have is how are you seeing human rights institutions, whether at the national level or in international or regional systems playing, what role are they, they taking in these? So I'll leave that open to anybody that has a comment. Natalia, you look unmuted. Can I throw it to you? I, ah, I look unmuted, okay. No, per, perhaps I can say something about migrants. Um, and especially as in, I am here in Colombia, and as you can see, we're really facing a very difficult uh, crisis with um, Venezuelan uh, migrants in Colombia, which is really, really, if you're here, you could see that this is not a joke. It's really, really tough. Um, but I will address something that we say in the paper regarding both our questions about the SDGs, uh, 
um, and cities in general with respect to migrants is that our concern is that in many of these discussions that place cities as the preferred site for the implementation of SDGs and for the implementation of human rights, we are kind of concerned that people are really looking at cities as if they were a territorial fix and not something that is relational and complex uh, and where there's a lot of informal, spontaneous, radical forms of, of, of political action and of, of dilemmas. Uh, so, so just recognizing that this is more complex than just something that you implement and that's it, and that you will have to, to understand this, these difficulties that are even in the concept of cities is important. And that means also recognizing the amount of informa of, of migrants, of irregular migrants that are nowadays um, in the cities that they need to participate and appropriate uh, the benefits of the city. And that's also a, a place, and, and I'm thinking in, in my context, uh, in the case of, of Venezuelans, uh, that for, for some time they were denied even, even the recognition of fundamental as, as right holders in, 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 in one particular territory. So, so I think the question of migrants brings into attention uh, the challenges of implementing formal rights in uh, complex settings that are not formal and fixed jurisdictions, but uh, relational sites, which, which is uh, important. I don't know if that makes sense at all, but. Great, thanks Natalia, yeah, absolutely. I don't know if anybody else wants to, to add to that. Leilani. Sure. Um, if I can, I'll, I'll address a few things that have come up and then I want to raise something as well, um, maybe for Sumudu, but maybe for others as well. Um, so I just wanted to, sorry, just wanted to uh, talk about the SDGs and Maloon's comment, which I really thoroughly appreciated. And um, I actually, I mean, there's, there, you know, you're sitting in the midst of this pandemic and uh, sorry, I'll speak quite casually, you know, sitting here and it's just going on and on and, and, things start, for me in my head, it's like the relevance of things have changed so much. To me, everything needs to be reevaluated. And I, I would agree with Maloon, maybe the entire framing of the SDGs doesn't even apply right now. But then to go to what Hans uh, Otto said, um, there is a way in which, and this is something I love about law generally, maybe I'm an egghead, but you know, we can interpret things. Like when the SDGs were presented to me, I'm the UN rapporteur, I had to, in, in my former life, I had to grapple with them. Well, they seemed so mild. And, and as I said, so many governments were treating them in a, a kind of neoliberal way, as Maloon has pointed out. And so, so I decided, well, I'm just going to take it and, and, in, and interpret it to, to, based on what I know is correct under international human rights law. And so I took target 11.1 of goal 11, and I said that it means all states must end homelessness by 2030, that there was no other reasonable interpretation of that target because it says everyone should have adequate, affordable, secure housing by 2030. So to me, that means the only interpretation is that 
homelessness must be ended. And I mean, that's, that's very consistent with uh, human rights because of course, homelessness is a prima facie violation. So I do think that if we're stuck with these things, we can do that kind of radical reinterpretation that I think Maloon is calling for and, and, and that I support. Um, on the migrants issue, um, I, I, I developed at the very end of my mandate a set of guidelines for the implementation of the right to housing. And I did have to grapple with um, the issue of how migrants, uh, undocumented and documented, are, are dealt with um, in terms of housing. They live in some of the worst conditions, period. Uh, and many states um, adopt a position of well, if I'm going to implement the right to housing, I'm going to do it for my own people, not for, for people who aren't even from my own country. That's a very common um, non-universal application of the human right to housing. And, and so obviously that's contrary to international human rights and humanitarian law. Uh, and so, um, you know, I tried to develop some provisions in those guidelines. I can put the URL up in the chat um, to address that, that discriminatory, deeply discriminatory treatment of, of migrants and refugees in terms of housing. Um, I wanted to comment on national human rights institutions. Um, I have a close working relationship for a long time before a rapporteur, as rapporteur, and now post-rapporteur with NHRIs. Um, I think that they can, should, and must play a really important role, both in terms of accountability and monitoring of human rights and their implementation, um, as well as acting as a really nice kind of swing between uh, grassroots movements, community organizations, NGOs, and government. They can play a really important facilitative role. Now, that's if they are NHRIs that meet the Paris principles and are independent uh, and not just an arm of the state. And the last thing I want to say, I'm sorry, I'm taking up too much airtime, I know, but this is really important because I want Samudu to, to, to weigh in on this, if not now, then in a future conversation, Samudu. Um, one of the things, I mean, obviously, we all care very deeply about climate change and the climate crisis. And we know that it is disproportionately affecting Indigenous peoples and peoples living in poverty, as Sumudu has, has so eloquently articulated for us. Um, one of the things that isn't being talked about enough, I don't think, is that when states undertake uh, climate mitigation strategies, they are often violating the human rights of those same groups. Um, so, you know, I go to uh, Jakarta and I, I see this new wall, seawall that's being put up to, you know, keep away the tsunami and the seawall is going to completely evict a community. Um, I'm quite concerned about what's happening in Europe with the green wave, that the renovation wave, excuse me, the renovation wave um, that Franz Timmermans, the executive vice president of the European uh, Union Commission is, is heading and talking about, you know, if we get um, owners of buildings, apartment buildings, to make their buildings more green so that they're uh, more energy efficient and therefore more affordable in some ways for people, that could also result in displacement. It, and I've heard lots of developers saying things like, oh, you want me to do a green building? Well, that's expensive, so I'm not going to be able to have affordable units 
in those buildings because um, it's just too expensive for me to create a, a, a green building. So I'm deep, like, obviously we have to address the climate crisis on the one hand, but we have to do it in a way that recognizes yep. that in so doing, we could be violating, let's say the right to housing for, for people uh, living in poverty and indigenous peoples. Okay, stopping. <laughs> Morten, do you want me to quickly address that? Uh, that would be good. Very shortly, we are running desperately okay. out of time and, uh, and we would like sure. to have a, just a short summing up from uh, Martha. So yes, please do, Sumudu. Sure, um, uh, Lilani, uh, that's a great point. And uh, I will just say that I have a chapter in my book on human rights approaches to climate change. Uh, on mitigation and adaptation and the need to apply a human rights framework. So I'll stop there. Very good. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, unfortunately, this brings us uh, towards uh, the end. We have two minutes left. So Martha, if you would, uh, now you lost the backdrop, but that's fine. Uh, if you would uh, sort of say uh, some of the main uh, takeaway from, uh, from this and Martha. Yes, thanks. So I deliberately lost the backdrop so that I could show. Ah, the very good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here it is. It actually exists, um, and uh, hopefully, folks will have a chance to uh, to dip into it. Um, we've gotten a flavor here today of some of the really rich um, contributions that our, our co contributors made. Um, so quickly, uh, uh, you know, a few highlights uh, for me. Um, you know, people have identified the fact that government's shortcomings and failures have been exposed even more dramatically um, through COVID-19, through the crisis, um, particularly talking about the right to housing, but also in other areas. Um, at the same time, as Hans Otto uh, pointed out, that the impact may also be uh, to create an opening for the rise of attention to human rights as governments are looking for ways to try to, um, you know, address some of these issues. Uh, Sumudu talked about um, the, the way in which a human rights approach can give human rights, a human face and a voice to um, individuals who are affected by um, these violations and particularly thinking about climate change. And then finally, the idea that um, human rights, of course, is not a panacea, but has the potential to produce social change in an urban context uh, that Natalia talked about. At the same time, you know, we, we see that there are limits to what uh, human rights can achieve, but the language of human rights is very durable and shows up in all sorts of places uh, where people are mobilized and active and, and uh, speaking to truth to power. So um, there, we're left with a lot of open questions that we weren't able to um, address in the chat, uh, but um, we're gonna be continuing the dialogue uh, on May 18th uh, with a new set of speakers. And I wanna thank everyone for coming today and especially our speakers for uh, their um, you know, really tremendous contributions. Thank, thank you very much, uh, Martha. And uh, if you look at the front page, if you can have it up uh, just once more uh, and you wonder what is that, then it is a map of London uh, highlighting the poor areas. It's basically a poverty map from I think the end of the, uh, the 19th century or beginning of the 20th century. So it's really, uh, have a, a closer look at that map. It's really fantastic. Uh, we, could, we couldn't resist that one for this book. <laughs> Anyhow, thanks a lot uh, to, to all the panelists and thanks a lot for, for all the comments in the, uh, in the chat. Uh, extremely valuable. And we will save the, the chat 
uh, and see if we can uh, bring it in in the future discussions. And uh, some of it, uh, we may also send you some direct uh, replies. At least I saw some that uh, could uh, could, uh, could need that. So uh, I don't know, uh, Amanda, uh, any? Thank you and greetings to everybody from, from Minneapolis and look forward to seeing you at the next one. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much, everyone. Thanks, Lila.